0: Welcome to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is a serial entrepreneur. His name is Roland Horn, and he's the founder of Watch House, a specialty coffee business. Which, if you haven't seen, you probably will come across soon as they are expanding rapidly, not only in London, but across the country and in America. In his previous life, He ran an aquarium business, selling high-end aquariums to the rich and famous all over the world. Roland was a great guest, and we discussed how he started out, what drew him to the really quite competitive world of specialty coffee, his fundraising journey so far, and what the future holds for Watch House. When you're next in central London, do check out one of their houses, or indeed their website at watchhouse.com. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Roland Horn, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure, Roland. Let's start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career?
1: So, I suppose I would say I'm a your classic plastic paddy, as they say. I was born in Dublin in the 80s, and then moved in the early 90s to the UK. Moved to uh, Nottinghamshire, where I was there until I was 18 and then, uh, set off for London to start my life in the, in the big smoke. And I went to a few institutions, this School of Oriental and African Studies, as so it was. As yes. Was, yeah, as it's now named, SOMAS. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time it was that name. And, uh, when there I studied economics and politics. And uh, in my second year of university, I set up my first business, uh, which I guess we'll come back to. And I then went on and did my masters at the London School of Economics. Um, in economic history and institutionally I am now studying for my part-time exec MBA outside business school in Oxford.
0: And so how did you start your career? Let's um, start your sort of professional career as it were and where, where do you pinpoint the start of your professional career?
1: Yeah I mean I often refer to rather unglamorously but I often refer to McDonald's as my sort of first entry into I guess, deliverance and customer service. Obviously, at the time, it was just a job to pay for the beer, even though I was 16 years old. But that was my first sort of dipping into the world of work. Uh, Obviously, I did things prior to that, I guess, entrepreneurial things, sold chocolate at school, and I was the Avon lady, as it was referred to back then again, Mm -hmm. not particularly PC nowadays, but that's what I was referred to back when I was sort of 12, 13 years old, going around knocking on people's doors. So there was loads of ventures. But McDonald's was my first proper PUIE job, as it were. Mm-hmm. But I think closer, sort of later on, and um, close to, to where I am now, I uh, after finishing my undergraduate degree, obviously, I'd started my first business, which was an aquarium design consultancy, and um, rather niche, and mm-hmm. um, niche industry to be in. But it was a hobby industry, and then did my master's, and then at the point of finishing my master's, it was kind of at that time, just before Lehman obviously blew up and uh, the world went to the GFC, I went and did my master's and then ended up getting a, a job with a, an oil trading firm here in, in London. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for six months or so uh, whilst sitting alongside doing my aquarium business. So, so. let's
0: introduce the aquarium business first, because yeah. I think I am interested by this, and it is or was
1: an interesting business um i would say that there isn't a lot of premeditation my choices in life and it tends to be opportunistic which has its pluses and of course its minuses. but the aquarium business was one in which my parents bought home in north london uh amazing that flat when i was doing my undergraduate degree in my first year uh there was a hole in the wall a friend of mine said, you know, wouldn't it be great to put a rotisserie chicken machine in that wall uh, or an aquarium? And was, luckily, we didn't find the form over there. The <laughs> form that sounds quite cool. And we ended up with the latter. So I, I found a company in Hamsters um, that was doing it at the time and agreed to effectively work for them free um, in exchange for them putting an aquarium in. And then during this time... I realised that it was a, a genuine niche, and a, you know, a very, you know, it's a very specific niche. You know, our our customers ended up being, you know, hedge fund owners. You know, Russian.
0: So these were big aquariums. These are big aquariums. So where was your, where was the most That's interesting place? Yeah, so
1: we did one in Chelsea for a very famous Formula One related individual. You can Google, which was, you know, a very large sort of seven-figure installation. And, you know, we did installations in New York, um, Lagos, Nigeria, we went sort of all over the place, really. Um, And what was interesting at the time, which I didn't really think about when I was in my early 20s, was the network it was kind of organically giving me. So. I pick up the phone and speak to, you know, people I've could now come to realize very senior people at SoftBank, for example, who, uh, you know, didn't mean anything to me at the time, uh, as an example, and, and, and other people that I could just pick up the phone and have conversations with about, you know, Jimmy the fish, but I could also then sort of uh, dovetail into asking questions about, you know, entrepreneurship and business life and all those kinds of things and just life generally so i think looking back i probably didn't leverage that enough but i did definitely build a network during that period which was just an interesting experience for an early 20 year old sort of hanging out in people homes
0: and that period was around 10 years 11 years yeah and what then made you you move on from that and, and what was the sort of um sale mechanism
1: yeah i i i mean dealing with that in reverse order. My sale mechanism was I myself and a business partner started a good friend of mine. And in the end, I basically, uh, we, we bought and acquired a, a bunch of properties. I sort of exited the business. Um, he kept the, the business and the commercial units that we bought and I kept the properties and we kind of went all separate way by, by division of assets. That was quite a nice, clean, simple, mm-hmm. um, I used the word divorce, but it wasn't, you know, in that way. Separation. Cons- conscious decoupling. Absolutely. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> conscious decoupling. Exactly. And then I think in reverse order, then in terms of how did I end up in Watch House, which is my latest incarnation of a business, again, it's opportunistic. I was uh, approached to be a angel investor in the formation of Watch House by somebody in hospitality and back in sort of 2012, which I agreed to do. And uh, the gentleman I was going to do it with stepped away about six months out from sort of going into the design process and my view was you know worst case scenario it was kind of a nosebleed if the business didn't work in terms of its financial risk and on the upside there's an opportunity for me to really uh, scratch an itch which was effectively creating sort of best-in-class environments which I tried to do in the aquarium world I and mean, we're going a bit Freudian here but it's kind of true <laughs> I liked creating worlds which I could create and then see them manifest and grow or die well it's
0: worth actually just introducing, backing up and just introducing mm. Watch House the sort of uh
1: elevator pitch for watch houses yeah it's, it's often difficult for me to do that because i think on the face of it is a specialty coffee chain within central london and i think you'll probably find about mm. 20 or 30 of those there's a few of those through, absolutely yeah. but i would say if you're a patron of watch house you would know quite quickly the difference between what we do and what what others do um effectively what we create in our business is what we refer to as modern coffee is a holistic experience which is a uh, a genuine attention to detail in both ultimately the culture and the business that we build and that really feel, you feel that as you walk into one of our houses, as we refer to them. And obviously great product in the food and the coffee, um, a great experience. So the actual spaces are really ergonomically considered and for, you know, from everything that, that you experience as, as a, as a, person in, in a space, which is, I think often just ignored. And, you know, I think once you sort of blend all those things together into one part really it kind of sets watch us in, a, in, a, in its own in its own class which is why we've grown the way we've grown and um, which we're, i guess we're going to come on to including obviously growing to the united states uh, later. we will come
0: on to the united states but just outline the uk operations
1: yeah as they are so far yeah so best in class specialty coffee operator is my sort of elevator pitch as it were um we are the only coffee roaster in the uk which uh, of size that doesn't do wholesale operations and the reason for that is that i believe strongly in brand preservation and an adherence to what we believe uh, are the key tenants of good coffee and i don't really ultimately trust that in the hands of people who aren't culturally within our business so we don't do wholesale coffee Uh, obviously we do direct to consumer and etc and um watch out now currently is uh is a 10 house strong business so all within central london we've got Our first national house opening up in Bath in May this year, uh, which is really exciting. We also have a further nine house locations currently in London, which we are in the process of designing slash building out, which is really exciting. Uh, And again, we're going to come on to the international piece later.
0: It must be so difficult scaling a business where every single touchpoint is your brand. And for something like Watch House, you know, everything, the way paper is wrapped, the way that people are... Talking to you the the website, I'm looking at the website and I'd urge our listeners to look at the website of botchhouse.com. How do you therefore ensure that all your employees across your 10 stores are singing from the same hymn sheet?
1: I think the answer to that question is we can't and we never will be able to do that. So it is a creator's curse, I guess you could say, in that I've said it before on other podcasts, and I guess I'll say it again here now, Uh, you know, I I generally don't like going into watch house locations. And the reason why I don't like going into them is because they do morph. It comes back, I guess, in some ways, to the Freudian subconscious thing. But I've created something which then sort of organically morphs and changes into something that it should be. Right. And that's beautiful in itself. But it isn't how I envisaged it. You know in the way it's been done and therefore that's quite frustrating now if you ask my family and my friends they go "Oh, it's amazing and we obviously get great reviews and all the rest of it but my attention to detail is such that i do notice those annoying things i'm sure in the same way that in your area of expertise you see things that i would have no idea about and think it'd be great but i just don't see them Mm -hmm. so i think the sort of curator's curse in some ways is that you do spot every little blemish I think what you need to learn to do is learn to love the waltz of your business, as it were, and the things Mm -hmm. that you can't control, which takes getting used to. Mm -hmm. So obviously I'm being facetious by saying I don't go to my watch hours. i go into to four of them today, for example. But Mm -hmm. it drives you to try and improve. It drives you to try and push the bar further and further. But Mm -hmm. it is it is an endless... You know, I say to my team, my senior leadership team, that like we have to be meticulously restless we want to be never satisfied with what Mm -hmm. we've done Like that has to be the mantra and it's dangerous because you don't want to be negative but you do want to continuously try and say to people like let's go eat our next you know our next lunch but make sure that it's done in a way which is just another level that we haven't done before in the past i often refer to sort of steve jobs you know sort of um you know blowing up um the ipod for the iphone for example like like fantastic product and let's Mm -hmm. throw it to the wind and let's go again you know i think Mm -hmm. we need we need to have that mantra of sort of eating ourselves to improve
0: it makes me think of uh, the japanese uh, kaizen, continuous mm-hmm. improvement. i mean i don't know if you spent much time in japan but the detailing is as high level as this um, i wonder uh, looking perhaps outwardly are there any brands that you kind of really look up to and kind of want to
1: emulate with watch house just your point about japan i think it's a really great culture for our product and actually it's uh, that and actually career are two areas where we look to them an awful lot in terms of their approach towards guest deliverance and enjoyment you know it's that kind of incredible deference which i think you know you don't have customers you have guests that kind of mindset which i think is amazing so no i think it's a really good comparable absolutely we have brands that we look at and we and we really want to emulate. I mean I think the one that we often get referred to and I'm very conscious of the not being too comparable to them is is ESOP, which is uh for those that don't know it's a incredibly specialist apothecary brand originally from Australia and and obviously now all over the world but their sort of their expression of their brand that you know the the language is always the same but the execution is always different and I think that's just something magical about that you know like the curse I guess of being a multi-site operator is the proclivity for you just to go through the path of least resistance and then doing that, you sort of get brand standards and then you start rolling things out and all this sort of lexicon, yeah. which basically means you're being lazy. And I think the Japanese are brilliant not doing this. Mm. Like, they really lean into, maybe it's a spatial thing, but they really lean into genuine organic design and, and engagement and and i think we in the in the sort of western developed world as it was or the certainly western world we, we get lazy as we mm. get bigger
0: well i suppose as things Absolutely. get bigger they become commoditized Would yeah. that be fair yeah 100 so. and when, maybe on that point and and as your business is growing which it is pretty um rapidly how does one control that what are the sort of tools you your
1: disposal to do that? Yeah, it's, uh, this is a really, uh, current question, actually. So we just to put some meat on the bone there. So we've, we've grown from, uh, you know, going into COVID, which of course is a watershed moment for many industries and certainly one from hospitality bricks and mortar business, which is principally what we are. We grew from being a four house location, obviously now up to 10. And most of that growth was done during the, the, the COVID period. To so your question, I think people always ask me, like, what's the best part and what's the hardest part? And I think the, the answer to both those questions is people and culture and i think as you become less of a sort of one site one team one dream it puts stresses on that cultural piece and you know many people have said this before i'm not telling you anything new here but i think the way that we try and improve as a it's not combat what we try and do is use frameworks such as the uh, objectives and key results framework um but i have to say i think the okr framework which is amazing obviously it's been Brilliant for loads of bit scaling tech businesses, but actually... What is that framework? So the framework effectively is about creating, in a, in a business which is scaling so fast and growing so quickly, obviously the, the IBMs, the Googles, those kind of companies, they grew so quickly that, and the headcount grew so quickly that it was kind of like, so how are we all working towards ultimately the, the goal at the top of the, of the pyramid basically and it's a way of systemizing it so that everyone kind of buys into that same vision and then how that disseminates down into the, the smallest little job that you're doing within your mm-hmm. silo right um that's a really good framework um john door is the, is the best academic to look at that but but actually i found that to be quite you know in a business where like your business obviously is 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 a very technical business where you know high levels of educational attainment and professionalism within the business our sector and our industry tends to be sadly within the uk a very transient young sector people who aren't necessarily professionals and is that uk specific yeah i think it's definitely i think mm, we reflect on that i would say that it's definitely a uk issue Mm -hmm. i think it's less seen in certainly in australia and and Mm. new zealand but equally in the states you also see people who really lean into that profession as a profession but yeah it's definitely a problem in the uk Mm -hmm.
0: let's move on to sort of the fundraising aspect Mm. of your business because i know that you are about to embark on a fundraising strategy Mm -hmm. and you have raised money in the in the past i suppose the question is how does one balance your time between operating the business which (laughs) requires time energy effort and raising and selling? business and the proposition to potential investors
1: i think um we were obviously just referencing the okr framework i was just about to say there that the we found actually the eos framework to be the one that that we use the most in terms of actually so i would encourage your listeners to to look at that framework it's fantastic in terms of really sitting down and saying you know right people right seat wrong people wrong seat etc so it's a really good framework so i would encourage you on Mm -hmm. that but to that point to answer your question Mm You know i am very good at some things and i'm really really bad at other things and that's not british slash irish modesty that's the truth like i'm not good when it comes to dealing with people's idiosyncrasies and in this eos framework you talk about integrators and visionaries i don't like using the visionary because it sounds a bit grandiose but i would be most entrepreneurs and startup entrepreneurs and founders are are visionaries who want to go out and try and disrupt something or change. And I think trying to be an integrator, a person who operates systems, who actually operates people, uh, is a certain type of person. And I am not that person whatsoever. And, and I identified that, you know, over the last three or four years, really. I've always kind of known it. And we've just now hired a managing director to come in, um, who will obviously report into me, but fundamentally, Caroline joins us from Planet Organic, she will ultimately be that integrator within our business.
0: Was that hard, finding the opposite? Because it's very easy, I would imagine, you know, well, we find it in our own industry, it's very easy to hire people like yourself. You know, it's very easy to hire people, you know, who see the world in the same way you do. However, it's quite difficult, I would imagine, to to reach out and hire the
1: opposite. How did you find that? Yeah, it's funny, because seven or eight years ago, I had a conversation with someone who works in recruitment, and she said to me, and it wasn't a customer, it wasn't a recruiter of ours. It was someone who was just family friend. Who said to me, Rowan, you must understand that you have a type of person that you like to hire, and you don't realise that, but you just do. Just like you have someone that you want to have a relationship with or a friendship with. It's just the same thing. So actually, what I find is that I find it very easy to hire someone who I think is opposite. There's not that conflict, I guess, and in that kind of true kind of blue green yellow red kind of situation um to use another framework but i think um you know i am you know your visionary kind of red type character like uh, and caroline would be you know a very yellow integrated type person and actually my uh, effectively co-founder she was my sixth hire at, at watch house who's uh, now a culture director for our business she's back from that matley next month she was also an integrator as well so i haven't had many instances of visionary meets visionary yeah. yet yeah, 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 which, yeah. which in itself needs to be double clicked right like there's a yeah. reason for that yeah
0: let's talk then about your expansion in uh overseas mm. and and i know you've you're, you're back from america and um, what have been the challenges
1: in in operating in america compared to to london Ooh. and the uk <laughs> I've been in the US in some shape or form economically now for seven years. So I'm familiar with things like notarizing a document, which, you know, who who, who knows mm-hmm. what that means and all those kinds of lovely American red tape things that mm-hmm. you kind of take for granted in the UK. I think when you, as you know, because obviously Europe um, worked abroad as well, I think when you live away from the UK and you come out, you come to realize that as much as it's cold and dark and you know all the rest of the things that we talk about negatively mm-hmm. there's also some amazing stuff in terms of the ability to actually get business done mm-hmm. and uh i think the u.s is notorious for its you know almost um it's uh, like a nation built by lawyers basically. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> by lawyers for lawyers <laughs> completely so to answer the question i think uh we're obviously very much in the infancy of what we're doing um you know many people ask why are you doing it um because obviously it's still relatively early on in in our businesses um trajectory. I mean, my view of that is that I think there is an element of just sort of cracking on and, and you know, not biting off more than you can chew. But equally, you know, I didn't know how to start a coffee business in 2014 when I did. And I learned and I did what I did. And now we're known as one of the best in the UK. And and I don't see a reason why we can't do the same thing in the US. Um, and if they're in the famous last words, then so be it. But I'd rather try than not. And that's kind of the mantra that, that I'm taking with it. It's hard. It's really hard um, to do. So we've got a great. Partner out there in terms of a, a landlord, so we, we were basically uh, effectively paid and um, to you know to go out there in in the sense of sort of de-risked move for us to do so. And off the back of that, we've got irons in the fire right now on a, on an offer in the Chrysler Building on the ground floor, which is just you know pretty amazing, um, and other locations within Manhattan and and Brooklyn at the moment. So yeah, listen, it's interesting, it's fun, and that's why we do it.
0: And returning to home, and returning to sort of the, the the vision for the business, clearly. What's interesting about Watch House, and you kind of need to see it to believe it, is the value proposition um, hangs so much on detail. You know, it's not commoditized. This isn't like every other coffee business, but that must create its own kind of constraints. Um, So it's kind of when you're designing a business plan, you must have to yoke the business plan with said constraints. So How do you think about the addressable market of the business? And, you know, maybe another way of asking it is, you know, what does the business look like in five years time?
1: My old man said to me years ago, he said, every five years you'll change who you are as a person. And I think that mantra of evolving every five years and it just looks different in five years time is absolutely true when it comes to business as well. I think it will have a addressable market which is different to our current one obviously we're very much a central london focused business right now yes okay we're going to manhattan on fifth avenue and therefore that is still in our breadbasket of affluent professional as it were but do i see us opening up a you know best-in-class you know drive-through space in bristol maybe yeah why not like why can't we reinvent that in a more interesting way so i think that the answer to the question is Yes, we will have formats. We already do. We have an espresso bar format and a brunch cafe format currently. In our Mayfair location, you can come in and buy a a frozen cup of coffee. What I mean by that is beans that have been frozen at the time of roasting in 2017, 2016, which we then grind in front of you and sell to you for 18, 19 pounds for a flat white, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, and that's not money for old rope, but Mm -hmm. that's genuine, like that's our approach towards i guess fundamentally quality within the mayfair bubble right mm-hmm. but are we going to open that in bath no mm-hmm. because that isn't what that market wants mm-hmm. so i think one of the beauties of watch house and it's not by design again this is purely i think just by organically trying to do the best we can within the space we are in is that we have the ability to exist within the traditional sort of cbd financial mm-hmm. parts of the world but also be able to operate in residential community you know rural areas etc so mm-hmm. and that's one of the I think the strengths of the brand
0: now, there's similar dynamics that you can point to in no, perhaps. To other industry verticals. So, for example, spirits or, or beer, um, where you have this kind of premiumization effect. Does that similar dynamic go on in
1: coffee mm-hmm. or is it more nuanced? There is definitely a premiumization element within it. And I think what you find is that, you know, a lot of what we do, you know, there's a lot of sort of negative saying around, say, Starbucks within our sector, right, because they're the godfathers of Espresso in a multi-chain uh, space mm-hmm. capacity, and I think they are fantastic at what they have done. I am not one of those people within the sector who sort of bastardizes them or, or seeks to sort of um, put them down. Yes, they do some, some things that oh, I don't. You know, I would never put syrups in a coffee or put you know gingerbread or whatever it is in a coffee. That's not that's not what we do as a business. But I think they're massively innovators, and they continue to innovate, which is and obviously found the lead still, which is amazing. I think that within coffee, you have this notion of premiumization. But I think what's really interesting is that it's obtainable premiumization. maybe mm-hmm. I mean, spoken about twenty pound coffees at Mayfair, that is far, far out. Yeah. you know that's 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 an anomaly. But actually realistically, most people can afford a three to four pound flat white if mm-hmm. they if they want to, like for the, for the most part, you know yeah. and I think the differentiation between us and one of the high street chains is a pound. so it's it's obtainable luxury
0: it's quite interesting this because it is and if you think about you know going back to sort of boring economics you know in terms of of economic cyclicality it kind of sits in the little luxury camp you know it's the it's the kind of thing it's one of the last things that you probably cut you know when push comes to shove and again you know thinking about margins and and protecting your margins against a higher cost backdrop you know because of the detailing, because of the sort of thought that goes into it, I guess there's a sort of inherent pricing power. So I understand that as well. It's interesting sort of, as you roll forward. I want to turn to what is normally our final question, which is um, advice. We have a lot of younger listeners to this podcast, and I wonder what advice you would give them to anyone who's looking to go and do something entrepreneurial, and what skills do they need to equip themselves with to be
1: successful? I believe entrepreneurship is something that you you don't just learn. I think it is, you know, from the moment you have to sort of uh, do something as a very, very young infant and you have to sort of try and think outside the box. And there's there's an element here of a true sort of nature versus nurture conversation. here. And I do believe that you are in some ways born an entrepreneur rather than learning that. That being said, of course, there are things that you can do to sort of, further your ability to understand business and, and set up your own business. It's not like, you know, you, only people who are born a certain way can do it. What I would say, I always, there's sort of a toolkit of things that I always advise people to do. Um, Firstly, a mentor. I mean, again, finding a mentor is, of course, the challenge. Um, but I think one way you can do that, which I think I've come to learn in the last four or five years, and it's not, I'm not saying this because I'm on a podcast. I'm saying it because I think it's the best way of immersing yourself quickly in something is to really hone in on, like, the top 10 entrepreneurial podcasts out there.
0: What are your
1: favorites? I love Scott Galloway. I think he, uh, so that's the Prof G Show and, and and Pivot. I was lucky to get him to come and speak at our university a few months ago, which was amazing. It was kind of to hear him in person and hear his insights. I think one of the things that he taught me and I think is a really great thing to always remember about entrepreneurship is there's kind of an order of preference between you know, the three things like firstly, you want to be successful, obviously. Secondly, you want to fail fast, but whatever you do, you need to make sure you avoid the third, which is to fail slowly. Because ultimately, what you realize is the finite time on the planet is actually what you're fighting against, not about you know the the money that you're making or the success that you can or can't have, like ultimately, we're we're spending our our time on the planet, and we need to do it in in a successful way. So I would say to you just I'm getting off my soapbox for a minute that the podcast network is a really good way of learning obviously you can go down the vocational education route. personally i think you learn more in podcasts that's no disservice to my uh, university but i think you learn a lot more from engaging in podcasts fundamentally i think that's where you know that makes the big mm-hmm. difference and then finally be super honest and transparent about who you are as an individual and like leave your, leave your ego at the door because like none of us are good like none of us are great at what we do like we're just trying to be and i think if we can have that mantra and just be honest about it i think it takes the noise out of the room and the conflict out of creative relationships because every relationship is creative isn't it in its own way it doesn't matter what you do even if you work in finance dare i say it
0: Horner, thank you for joining me
1: thank you very much
0: Thank you for listening to the Y-Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Roland Horn. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.